Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. They've added words to our dictionaries like Shakespeare. They're responsible for a boom in the animation industry, and they are America's longest-running sitcom, having been renewed for a now 34th season. Joining us to discuss the one, the only, The Simpsons are two returning Pop and Lock guests and Simpsons megafans. Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, Michael Cannon. How are you, Landry? And Associate Professor of Philosophy at the College of William and Mary, Chris Fryman. Hi, good to be here. Between Bart Simpson appearing on any type of print possible, Portland recently naming a major bridge after Ned Flanders, Spider-Pig becoming a national icon, and all that the show has done for animation as an industry and art form, how and why did The Simpsons go from just a show to a pop culture sensation? Oh, God, there are lots <laughs> of things went into that. Uh, uh, <laughs> That's a loaded the, the question. First, Here you go. Yeah, there's uh, the, the first has to be a fantastic set of, uh, of talent uh, all converging in one place in you know, some bunker in California where they started spitting out these um, – First cartoon shorts in 1987, and then uh, a regular uh, animated uh, series on primetime TV in January of 1990. Uh, the people who make The Simpsons, the writers uh, from the very beginning, and the the voice talent are really just uh, amazingly talented people. And they all came together in one place in time with this medium that had been used before. Obviously, there's there was lots of animation on television before 1987 and uh, January of 1990, but uh, no one had really explored the potential of animation, of animated TV, the way the creators and the talent on The Simpsons did. I mean, they took it in directions that no one ever had. They made a cartoon for adults. That wasn't uh, uh, adult in the sense of being inappropriate or anything like that for for primetime, but adult in the sense of being very cerebral. Uh, at, at, the, at the same time, it was uh, it was very funny, and uh, and and so uh, once they realized that this uh, that this medium had potential. To go where live action television never had, where animation never had before, uh, this very talented group of people just went hog wild and turned this show into uh, a sensation that is, you know, ongoing now, uh, thirty years later, and has captivated uh, 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 now, I think, generations of audiences. Michael, can I ask you, did you know those dates off the top of your head or did you research them before you did the podcast? I'm just curious. <laughs> I did my research, oh. at least well, that much research. Well, I also research. kind of, Cannon, I want to put you on the spot. Did you um, watch the first episode the day it aired? Uh, you mean on the Tracy Ullman show? Yeah. No. So or I, in uh, January of 1990, the fir first full episode. True confession uh, time. I when it came out uh, on the Tracy Ullman show, which I watched occasionally, uh, I didn't think much of The Simpsons. Uh, I thought they were a little weird. And even as I look back on the first, so I don't remember if I saw the first episode that aired. But and when I look back on the first season, uh, it you could see the potential of the show. Uh, but it, it they hadn't really hit their stride yet. I don't think they really did that until maybe the third season. 
and uh and so i i, I didn't I, I didn't know what i was looking at at the time i thought it was i thought it was funny and when i go back and look at the 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 things that i uh, uh the, the the first season now uh i still think it's i still think it's funny but uh no i was not like a diehard fan from the beginning um uh i still remember you know one of the shorts of the tracy ellman show where they did a, a riff on uh, things the parents say to their kids when they're tucking them in at night and how it's, they're actually kind of terrifying. You know, the rockabye baby on the treetop uh, lullaby and um, uh, <laughs> and Bart is asking Homer existential questions about what is the human mind. And it's just way over Homer's said. And he, gets, he says, what is mine? Doesn't matter. What is matter? Never mind. And – uh, and, and so I, you know, I, I, I remember that from watching it the first time, uh, and, but again, didn't know, was not th- then the huge fan that I am now, uh, cause I didn't realize what I was looking at yet. And they didn't realize what they had, what they were sitting on yet. That's gotta be the influence of all those Harvard writers, those jokes, I think. And, and I agree. I, I think the, the the third season is is probably actually when I started watching as a kid. So I think a lot of people didn't quite know what to make of it, even in, you know in the third or fourth season, where people had this impression it was uh, this this really vulgar sort of dangerous show. I think maybe Barbara Bush or someone you know said that the Simpsons family was a bad influence, and so there was a period of time in my childhood where I wasn't permitted to watch The Simpsons. Uh, but then, you know, then, then my parents watched it and they saw that it, that it was not, not just that it was funny, but that it was actually like kind of heartwarming in a lot of ways, particularly in the early seasons. There was a lot of family togetherness and that sort of thing in the show. Uh, but, but I agree. It was the, it, the third season for me, rewatching them from the beginning. That's really when it, it took off and became what it is today. Well, not what it is today. I mean, we could have a conversation about what it is today, perhaps. Oh, uh, don't worry. We will. <laughs> okay. I'll say what it was at its peak. I'll say. It does make me feel good to hear that someone else was also at one point not permitted to watch this television show um, because I was certainly in that camp. And I knew other people that sort of had similar situations or their parents were wary. But I also knew a ton of kids whose parents were like, yeah, it's The Simpsons. It's a cartoon or, you know, it's hilarious. But I was certainly in the camp that the Simpsons were something that what I was not allowed. It was for adults. But my, I feel like I missed the cutoff for like getting a taste of it or them. They basically just came in and my parents didn't watch the Simpsons either. So they weren't, they didn't know why they, I wasn't allowed to watch it. They were like, it's just not for kids. So I grew up thinking the Simpsons was this vulgar television show, <laughs> completely inappropriate, they're cursing all the time. It's violent. It's sexual. And then I went back and, you know, my parents eventually were like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I guess if you want to watch it, you could. But, you know, we just we weren't fans. And so I look back and I learned that people were just like Bart Simpson is a bad influence on children and he might misbehave. <laughs> and I'm like, this is what we worried about in the early 90s? Honestly. Eat my shorts was scandalous. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm like, eat my shorts. That's nothing these days. <laughs> so, so was there something that fueled this backlash? I know Chris had mentioned like possibly Barbara Bush or something, but like, what what cultural context are we working with at the start of The Simpsons that both sort of created the uh, what it wanted to be and what it could be, and also how people reacted to it? 
uh, let me give you a little bit of the cultural background of the United States uh, through, through my own story. <laughs> and I can one up both of you here. But my parents also forbade me to watch an animated television show, but it was not The Simpsons. It was The Flintstones. My parents thought The Flintstones were too <laughs> adult. Uh, now that, that also da- dates me. It, it, it reveals that I'm the oldest person on this call because I was a child when the, you know, the Flintstones was on the air. And, Back when uh, dinosaurs roamed the earth. I was about to say, right. it wasn't and even like a still, flashback at that point. It was just like we, modern day. We still make fun of my mom for that one. And, but by the time that Simpsons came around, I was in, I was in high school when I was a senior in high school with the, with the series began to air. Uh, my parents had relaxed about the, the cartoons or given up what, I don't know, I don't know what the, which is true, but, uh, but the, the country was still, you know, this is the United States. It still has a puritanical streak and it had a v- very strong tribal, political, cultural, uh, war that was being waged that when, when George H.W. Bush ran for president in 1988, he was running on a family values platform. And then, uh, along come the Simpsons, who are this, uh, supposed to be this typical American family and, uh, and they're boorish and they're, and sometimes obnoxious. And, and, uh, before long, the first, the first lady and then the president of the United States is taking swipes at, uh, at this show. And, uh, and that, I, I think what that says about the country is that all this garbage that we're dealing with now, all this tribalism and partisanship, there's nothing new about it. It's just uh, the cost of people conveying their tribal allegiances has plummeted dramatically with technology. And so it seems like there's more of it out there, but it was, it was already there. And, um, and I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that, you know, at the time the Simpsons came out, uh, I, I, in, in my misspent youth, I considered myself a Republican. Uh, but I'm proud to say that I was disappointed with, uh, uh, George and Barr when they, uh, were making fun of the Simpsons because I, even then I knew oh, you're just not giving them a chance because there's really t- something special here. Were you a Republican at the time they aired the episode, the sideshow Bob runs for mayor, mayor, and they had like the Republican party headquarters? Were you still a Republican at that point? And if so, how did you respond to that? I don't think so. I don't think so. What year was, was that? That was pretty early. That would have been like season five-ish, I think. I mean, we can look it up fairly, uh, fairly quickly, but, uh, oh, right. It was Sideshow Bob Roberts, uh, season six, episode and, and five. And there's the, the Rush Limbaugh character. Oh, and that was glorious. So, so this is, this is actually interesting. I think it explains some of the, some of the cultural, uh, divisions over The Simpsons. Let's see. It aired in 94. So that was, um, that was when I was graduating college. By that time, I had left the college Republicans, but, I think a, a lot of conservatives had a problem with this show because they might have aesthetic taste that makes them prefer watching the Waltons to the Simpsons, as George Bush uh, put it. But also because George and Barbara Bush were criticizing the Simpsons and the Simpsons shot back. Uh, in fact, they shot back in the middle of an election campaign by saying, uh, you know, when Bart said, uh, uh, that we're just like the Waltons, we're praying for the, for an end to the depression too. That was, they took that as a partisan shot against 
George H.W. Bush. And I think that caused a lot of conservatives to miss just how much this show skewers big government, the Democratic Party, and a lot of, of uh, uh, things that drive conservatives crazy. They, oh, Yes, they also uh, skewered Republicans. But I came up with a list of things uh, just from, from the, the few shows that we watched uh, that, uh, that should be uh, appealing to conservatives, like in Deep Space Homer, how you've got this government agency, NASA, that's more, that has all this equipment not to track satellites, but to track Nielsen ratings. Uh, they're joking about NASA unloading uh, a, an IRS surveillance satellite into space. Uh, and, and yet, the Simpsons were doing all these things to talk about, uh, I mean, to poke fun at the idea of, of big government and, and how incompetent government is. You would think conservatives would like it. But a lot of them fell into this trap of th- thinking the Simpsons were against them uh, because of this thing with George and Barbara Bush and because they do, yeah, in fact, make fun of Republicans. And you mentioned family values, and and that's an interesting feature of so many of the episodes, particularly the early ones. So, so many of those episodes have a plot where the family goes through some ordeal, they have some struggle that's kind of tearing them apart. But at the end of every single episode, the family kind of comes together, oftentimes in front of the TV, like the kid has a problem, Homer and Marge have a problem, but at the end of every single episode, they come back together, which you think would be construed as a very sort of family values kind of message. But like you said, it was more just about the partisanship than watching the show and seeing what was promoted in it. And if you get tired of your political enemies, your political opponents, uh, making fun of businessmen and they portray businessmen as C. Montgomery Burns, yeah, it's going to stick in your craw a little bit. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe their tribalism blinded them from how even-handed this show really is. Uh, I mean, in the few shows that uh, we made a list of uh, notable Simpsons episodes uh, that we were all going to try to watch before we did this podcast. And in that 10 or so shows, uh, and I only watched all but one of them, they made fun of Ted Kennedy twice just in this just in this handful of shows. I mean, and and they they did it in the context of (laughs) they did it in a way that made Rush Limbaugh sound reasonable uh, one of those times. When one of the characters said, uh, Birch Barlow, that right-wing crackpot, he said Ted Kennedy lacked integrity. Can you believe that? I mean, that that's a way of making fun of the left that makes the right look reasonable. And I, Yeah. They also have a few libertarian jokes in there. So the one thing that I remember in particular is when Ned's leftorium is about to close, he says, you know, I only have it until midnight. And then it becomes libertarian party headquarters. Let's hope they have better luck with it than I do. <laughs> They did take so they took a dig at libertarians, but they I would I, I would argue most of the political messaging, most of the political themes in The Simpsons, are very libertarian friendly because they're they're making fun of uh, the left, they're making fun of the right, they're making fun of government and how incompetent it is. They are making fun of the the uh, the irrationality of collective decision making. Uh, they, I mean, if you look at, uh, Treehouse of Horror 7, which was on our list, that, that's where the people of America, uh, elect President Kang, uh, they're, they're, they're talking, I mean, this, that's only a portion of an episode, but it's so jam packed with political commentary about how the, 
how a two-party system uh, necessarily limits people's choices in the political sphere uh, and and uh, uh, suppresses a lot of people's political preferences and 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 transforms the because each party is competing for the median voter transforms the two party into. Uh, entities that really don't look that different from each other. And that is a very libertarian thing. We are forever talking about how there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. And they even have those classic lines where someone says, well, I believe I'll vote for a third party candidate. And uh, Codos or Kang, <laughs> I forget who, says, go ahead, throw your vote away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the, 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 the classic line where Marge asks, once they're enslaved by President Kang, uh, and Marge asks, why, I, why am I even building this uh, space weapon to point at a planet I've never heard of? And Homer says, don't blame me. I voted for Kodos. <laughs> I think one of the hallmarks of the show, too, is this like its ability to kind of like make fun of everyone. So like it doesn't I don't I, I think in the earlier seasons, like Cannon was saying, it might have alienated some groups over others. But as like the show progressed, I feel like they may they were powerful in the sense that they were able to like make fun of everyone right left they made fun they make fun of parents they make fun of kids men women business people like i think they like really run the gambit in terms of like who who is like the source of attack that day um which i think makes it a more accessible show for everyone and like doesn't necessarily alienate an audience and there's always like maybe one episode you're upset because they attacked your group or whatever um but it's still funny like <laughs> like it's still something that should be funny and shouldn't be taken personally and i think that's like one of the things the show does so well at least in its prime was that it did a good job of like dispersing <laughs> the attacking and didn't make it like oh so clear that like this is who we're going to attack and this is how the show is going to be always it, it very much exemplifies the ethos of don't have a cow man like yeah. it's, it's, it's the whole point. It's just like, we're all, you know, we're all a mess at this point. Like we all deserve a little bit of ridicule. And, and I mean, honestly, I don't think that's a bad lesson. You know, don't have a cow, man. It's uh, uh and they yeah. did that. They did that from, from season one. If you remember in season one, uh, Bart, the general, uh, it, grandpa Simpson uh, is writing a letter to, uh, advertisers, the people, the companies that advertise on television, complaining about the entertainment that he's seeing on television and how he wants it to be bland and inoffensive. Uh, they so they began the the series really by making fun of uh, their audience, part of their audience, people who are going to complain about them. But by the time they were done, they were not just making they not just made fun of their audience and everyone else. They even uh, turned uh, on themselves. They, they made fun of writers. There's a classic episode also involving Grandpa Simpson where uh, where they are uh, teasing uh, the writers on the show for being Harvard educated and thinking they're uh, they're smarter than they than they really are. Uh, I think that they were making fun of Conan O'Brien in particular with that one. Uh, they, they make fun of the producers of the show in, in that episode as well. They make fun not, – and not only that. And they, of course, they make fun of the, the genre of animated television through Itchy and Scratchy and other um, uh, other digs. But they even made fun – and this, this is what always impressed me the most. They even made fun of Fox. And that, that, that just warmed my heart that they were, that they, they were brave enough to do it and then they got away with it. And here I'm thinking of when, um, I think it was, 
uh, Lisa Simpson was asking Krusty the Clown about his what is it his brother or his cousin Luke Perry, and said uh, who was on Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero and uh, and and she asked him doesn't your doesn't he have a doesn't he have a show of his? Oh yeah, Krusty was trying to revive his career. Can't Luke help you out? Doesn't he have his own show? And Krusty the Clown goes, "Yeah, but it's on Fox." Ugh. And uh, and that that uh, that really illustrates that they were equal opportunity, uh, uh, not offenders, but uh, they believed in equal opportunity when it came to uh, making fun of people, and and that this was really a a. A, a a huge cultural phenomenon because they could get away with doing that, get away with making fun of their parent company, uh, and the uh, and the parent company loved it. Well, because they were um, laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah. Well, they would even they would even go after Rupert Murdoch in particular, not just Fox. He makes a couple of a Rupert Murdoch makes a couple of appearances uh, in Simpsons episodes. A lot of commentary. And specifically, very recently, within the past few years, has centered around what the Simpsons mean and how they were meant to exemplify, like someone had mentioned before, the typical American family. Um, Springfield itself is closest to Matt Granig's uh, hometown in Oregon, for instance. But there, I mean, there are 34 Springfields in like 25 different states in the United States, which apparently is also not the most common name for a town in the U.S. There are apparently places that have more common names. Um, but it, it's certainly meant to uh, represent any anywhere USA in the sense that like a Pawnee Indiana is a, a, a attempts to feel like that even if it doesn't always quite capture what any place could be um what does it mean for the Simpsons to represent this quote unquote real America and is that what they project then as the real America is that attainable? Like they have, they started off in this very comfortable middle class life, um, where they show the Simpsons struggling financially at times. But they, you know, Homer has a stable uh, job. There's a lot of union power that becomes uh, sort of integral to his story at one point. But eventually, they they seem to become like almost wealthy in an aspect, but only because of the way people are looking at what they achieve in today's economic context. Um, so people have calculated like what Homer would take home in wages based on inflation and wage power and things like that. And and, and I think it's, and it's really fascinating. Um, I, I wonder what it means for someone to try and capture what real America is. Like that's, that's something that gets lobbed a lot. I think at specifically a lot of conservatives, because I think they use that as a talking point very frequently. Like you hear them talking about flyover country when Trump was elected, you know, it's like, we're going to go to West Virginia and we're going to do profiles of Trump voters and get to know what the real America is. Is that a thing? Should we use is real America a myth, or if it if it does exist, what is that? Uh, three hundred and thirty million is a really big number. I know that in Washington we're used to dealing with billions and now even trillions, but um, 
330 million is big enough that we can't get our heads around it. And in a country of 330 million people, you are not going to see a lot of homogeneity. I mean, there's, so the answer to your question is, uh, it's, it's too big a nation, uh, to, find something typical to find something real there's so much diversity here that you're not gonna um uh, you're not gonna find a real america you're gonna find commonality and certainly the simpsons touched in or, or tapped into a lot of that uh but uh but i don't think there is a real america uh that um uh unless it's just you know common themes and common relationships uh you're not gonna find a, uh, a real America in the sense of common culture or even uh, common family structure. And it's worth noting that actually becomes reflected in The Simpsons as the seasons go on. So sometimes they're almost in, you know, New York. Springfield is kind of like New York. And then sometimes there's like Beverly Hills is like right next door to The Simpsons. And like West Virginia is like right next door to, to Springfield. It's very similar to like uh, a King of the Hill where uh, the town that they're in is – it could be anywhere in Texas. It's an hour from Dallas, Austin, Houston, El Paso, <laughs> and Amarillo, <laughs> which right. if you know Texas is physically impossible. <laughs> and I will say, too, in terms of that. So, I've, I, you know, I see the meme that's like, you know, right. It's like this is what Homer would have to make, et cetera, et cetera. And people talk about uh, the union at the power plant. But it's also worth noting it, it they do use nuclear power. So, like, that's another thing. You know, maybe that's, that's right. worth discussing as well. I don't well, know. <laughs> and it's the cleanest form of power there is, except for solar, which is just a crock. Um, <laughs> now, now they, they use nuclear power, but it also comes in for a lot more criticism than praise. Everything does. But – uh, I don't think they, uh, they ever have anything nice to say about, uh, about solar. Um, uh, but the, the union, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the union stuff. Now that's something I left out of my you know, list of political themes that, uh, that Republicans and conservatives should have liked is, wow, they're harsh on unions. Uh, yeah. in the Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, when, when Homer gets elected the head of the union and asks, how much does it pay? And they say nothing. And he says, don't. And they say, unless you're crooked, he goes, woohoo. <laughs> yeah. um, that's uh that's that's an important and uh, uh political theme and, and, and a uh another example of the bravery of the writers and the staff on the show that they're able to make fun of such a power politically powerful uh and and culturally powerful institution and live to tell the tale well, they also they make fun of police unions a lot too. Oh God! Well, and also like public schools too. I mean, they make fun of public school teachers and and you know Principal Skinner. So this goes to the point that they're they're sort of bipartisan uh, skewers, and in an affectionate way, also because I'm sure uh, you know the teachers I know would see what uh, Mrs. Krabappel has to deal with and see what Principal Skinner has to deal with and think, oh, yeah, yeah, just like that. Um, uh, because uh, because I think they do it in, in an affectionate way. It's true. It's not as acerbic as something like South Park, which similarly has a, like, no one is safe philosophy to their punchlines. Everything with the Simpsons is kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and then pulls you in and like gives you a noogie. It's more of, it's, it's, there's almost like a, you know, you can make fun of people when they're close with you vibe to it. And I think that's part of its appeal too. I mean, I like, I, I like South Park I, and, and I like comedies that uh, don't, don't have a soft side. So shows like Seinfeld or it's always sunny in Philadelphia. 
I like, and they have they have no softness to them whatsoever. But there's also something to be said for shows like The Simpsons, where yeah, they make they make fun of people and institutions, but there's always this uh, sort of layer of of uh, empathy and understanding. And I think there's a there's a place for that. Well, I was even going to say like an example of that is like in the Bart the General episode at the end, uh, Bart's like talking to the camera and it was like trying uh, the show creators are trying to say that, you know, like no one wins in war and they're trying that like no, war, the no war is a good war. And then, and then Bart goes, well, except the American Revolution and following Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, and then he like lists stuff off. So they're trying to like have a clear message about like what they thought about war. But then he like lists all the ones he thought were good wars <laughs> yeah which and so making fun of uh american political culture on that score um uh and also in that episode where uh making fun of uh american political culture where uh grandpa simpson explains to bart that a general can send a soldier into battle can uh, push him out of an airplane can do all these awful things to him but you can't slap him i mean that was a very apocalypse now moment uh, with explaining what happened to General Patton there. Um, and I think that's another libertarian theme, pointing out the, the hypocrisy that political, uh, uh, collective decision making can produce, uh, as, you know, manifest itself in the American public don't, uh, war crimes that American soldiers might, um, might commit or, uh, all the, uh, collateral damage in our kinetic, uh, military actions. But God, if you put a put an obscenity on a bomb that you're going to drop on somebody, the problem is the obscenity, or um, uh, rather than the bomb itself, that that generates a backlash among the body politic. There are a lot of lessons that The Simpsons can teach us. I think um, one that Chris had pointed out in preparation for this episode was. Uh, there is possibly a Hayekian lesson about unintended consequences in a certain episode. Um, would you would you care to elaborate and uh, explain what you meant by that? Sure. This might be you know reading too much into The Simpsons, but I suppose I, you know I don't know. Maybe not. Never. Uh, maybe it's not. not yeah. possible. And that's what we're here for anyway. <laughs> but but exactly. Yeah, there's. I mean, this is is just kind of one of the all time great episodes in its own right. I think it's just called Bart versus Australia. But it's the one where they they go to Australia. Um, but, the, you know, there's this uh, – they go to the airport and uh, Bart says, you know, what is this sign? And Lisa says, ah, you can't bring uh, plants and animals into the country. It might disrupt their ecosystem. And Bart says, oh, okay. And he, like, lets his frog go uh, in the Australian airport. And then at the end, you see, like, the, you know, now the, 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 uh, the whole Australian countryside is being overrun by frogs destroying their crops because just this one tiny little intervention – that Bart made in their in their delicate ecosystem. And it strikes me that there's a kind of Hayekian lesson there about unintended consequences and complexity. Uh, that's something that might seem sort of like a you know a, a trivial intervention into into the economy can have uh, really huge and negative unintended consequences. And that's you know some people have have pointed out this parallel before between ecology and economics that they're both you know complex delicate systems, and it's just really hard to know how a very small change can can uh, have larger impacts on the system. And so even though that's not, you know, not about Hayek exactly, the, the, the frog case, I think there's a lesson to be learned there. And I think, I think you're right. I think it's a lesson they tried to drive home a couple times. Uh, in addition to that, in Treehouse of Horror 5, you remember 
Homer travels back in time and uh, and alters the future in ways that he didn't like. Uh, some ways that he did, but he 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 went back into time before it started raining donuts. Uh, and, and, and then began, you know, sm- uh, stepping on every dinosaur he could find, um, to try to change the future. And uh, the lesson there is, you know, t- tiny, uh, uh, dis- uh, small decisions can have big cons- uh, unintended consequences over time. But maybe the best example I think of this is, is, uh, also the, probably the most libertarian episode of The Simpsons ever, which was Homer versus the 18th Amendment. When the town of Springfield, decides to not reinstate prohibition but they found that oh wait it the the town charter has always prohibited alcohol and so they decided to enforce that and uh and and it, it it came after St. Patrick's Day and a lot of uh 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 drunken tomfoolery but uh they demonstrated in that episode all of the negative uh, almost you know all of the negative unintended consequences of prohibition um including uh, when Homer said that at first I thought prohibition was a good thing, people were drinking more and having a lot more fun. So there is that unintended consequence of prohibition. There was also the corruption of the police. Uh, there was uh, a funny exchange between Fat Tony and uh, Rex Banner, the Elliot Ness-like figure who came to clean up uh, to uh, Springfield to enforce prohibition, where 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 Fat Tony says, "All right, you win. From now on, we'll stick to smuggling heroin." And uh, Rex Banner, the policeman, says, "See that you do, uh, because that's that's another effect of unintended effect of prohibition is uh, when you prohibit certain substances uh, that you know uh, psychoactive or or uh, uh, what have you substances that people want to put in their bodies, you create an incentive for them to make those substances more potent so that they're." more easily concealable, uh, and also as it happens, more dangerous. Uh, they, uh, they go through all sorts of, uh, unintended consequences of prohibition in that episode before they realize, before, uh, at the end, at the end, Marge Simpson gives a very inspirational, uh, speech where she says, uh, all my husband did was violate a law that doesn't make sense. And then she makes a really interesting cost benefit Calculus. She says, now I'll admit, car crashes and fistfights have been down recently, but prohibition has cost us our freedom, our freedom to drink. Uh, and, and so, uh, I, uh, when you talk about unintended consequences, I, I mean, that, 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 that episode is a tour de force of that Hayekian lesson in, um, in, un- uh, about unintended consequences. And uh, I also think it's, as I said, it's uh, probably the most libertarian episode of The Simpsons. So so I have a couple of thoughts. First, this is not really Simpsons related. This is just kind of amusing. Um, It's not necessarily amusing, but it's amusing. Where like in movies and TV where they're like, you you know, if you travel back into the past, they say don't swat a mosquito because it could be really bad because it could change the future or the present, I guess. But like... I swat mosquitoes in the present, and that doesn't seem morally problematic, but that's going to alter the future. And unint- so, like, why is it worse to go back into the past and squat a mosquito, swat a mosquito <laughs> than the- do it in the present? I don't know. I feel like they could both have unintended consequences. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. we got to ask for Conan O'Brien that, I guess. Because the victims, the victims already exist or something. Maybe. I mean, whenever I think about... Whenever I think about time travel, I, 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 I ruin it for myself and everybody else because I... I, I always ask the question, okay, you can travel through time, 
But if you do that, the earth's not going to be in the same place it was when you left. And, and so you're going to be, you're going to be floating away in space wherever you go, unless you're also really, you know, unless you can also travel through space really precisely. So, uh, yeah. I, Physicists, I, I ruin it. make sure to respond to us on Twitter. I want this fact check. Hey, but <laughs> according to this, according to the Simpsons, average citizens can now go into space. So we should be fine. If I could uh, follow up too on the, the prohibition thing, one, one thing that I thought was really nicely illustrated by that episode, and actually I have to put a plug in for the Institute for Liberal Studies. So I actually taught uh, a, a couple of weeks worth of uh, seminars on the Simpsons and politics. And so I came super, I was super well prepared for this. And we watched that episode for, for that, um, for that seminar. And, and one thing that really, uh, stuck out is how it illustrates the, uh, Baptists and bootleggers dynamic, which w- was, of course, part of a driving force of prohibition itself, where you have, I think it was like literally Helen Lovejoy is like, won't somebody think of the children? Like they're getting drunk. It's, it's terrible. They have, they're these moralizers who want prohibition. And then of course you have the people who profit off of the prohibition. Uh, like Homer in this episode. And of course, this was actually the dynamic in, in prohibition in the United States. I thought they did a really good job of actually nailing how that works. It still is the dynamic uh, in the United States. And uh, as was uh, illustrated again in popular culture by the show Breaking Bad and how one of the drug kingpins there was uh, pretended to be one of the Baptists uh, uh, trying to get drugs off the streets. Uh, because he knew that it uh, it it was good for business. Prohibition was good for business. I just thought it was downright hilarious that they were sm- put, smuggling the beer into the house in bowling balls. <laughs> like, it just didn't make any sense to me. I was like, of all things, like why? But hey, it works. But w- one more observation about that episode, something that uh, – and this is another libertarian thing, but didn't even occur to me, maybe the first – you know, however many times I saw it, I've seen this episode a number of times and it didn't occur to me until I was reviewing it for this show. But there's a very, very harsh critical judgment that The Simpsons embedded into that episode about people who are, who, who want to limit other people's freedom. And right, it is, it came from Rex Banner right after Marge gives her brief speech about how prohibition has cost us our freedom, the freedom to drink. Rex Banner says, now hold on a minute, Missy. It's not up to us to choose which laws we want to obey. If it were, I'd kill everyone who looked at me cockeyed. I didn't realize it until this most recent time that I watched that episode that uh, they're portraying this, 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 this prohibitionist as a psychopath. This is someone who, if unrestrained by law, would go around killing people. And, uh, and, that's and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seemed like a deliberate choice to uh, uh, to portray prohibitionists as having these sorts of impulses. So I feel like a lot of times when people are talking about The Simpsons, like now nowadays about episodes from the past, they're always talking about how The Simpsons predicted real life and how that's like a big thing. <laughs> Um, so off the top of your head, how many, can you think of how many times the Simpsons has predicted real life? I mean, it's, it's a lot. I, th- so the, the one that stands out is they predicted the Trump presidency pretty far in advance. 
Uh, I, I think part of it is just so, you know, they, they, what it, it's 34 years or something. So like 34 years and, you know, 20 plus episodes a season. You think, you know, how many minutes of The Simpsons has been on TV? And, you know, they, they got to get something that they're saying so much stuff. They just got to they got to get some of the predictions right. And those are the ones that stick out. But but yeah, the, the Trump one, I think, was was really the big one that. Lisa inherited a a, a big uh, debt from uh, President Trump in one of the the flash forward episodes. I think this this is a fascinating area for scholarly inquiry into what did the Simpsons get right about the future. Or, but I think it's a mistake to call these things predictions. They were not predicting a President Trump. What they were trying to do was come up with an outrageous scenario in the future, so outrageous that it would make people laugh and not just laugh, laugh a lot. And they... Uh, and the most outrageous thing they could come up with is this clown from New York becoming the president of the United States because, yeah, you could kind of see how it would happen, but that would just be insane. And then it happened. So, so, you know, you can look back and say, oh, they, they predicted it. They were not sitting there saying, we think Donald Trump is going to become the president. Uh, maybe uh, they, they were saying that would be insane if it happened. Maybe they were saying the political system is so screwy and political collective decision making is so irrational and dangerous that Donald Trump, someone like Donald Trump could end up president. But I think it's more, it's important to, to recognize that they were not, they were not predicting this. They're just trying to come up with outrageous, uh, an outrageous scenario and the political system happened to match it. I have, I think what is going to be a tough question for some of you. When is it going to be time to say goodbye? Has it already happened? Is there a time where you're like, it should have ended here and, you know, just forget the rest? Easiest question ever, because Troy McClure has already answered it when he said, who knows what sorts of uh, shenanigans they'll get into between now and the time the show becomes unprofitable. I mean, that's when The Simpsons are going to end. And they even made fun of themselves. They made fun of the the the, uh, the cancellation of their own series years in advance because uh, by by admitting this is what's going to make it happen. What, what's I, so? I might be wrong about this, but I seem to remember one of the joke episodes that Troy McClure references is like. Uh, you know, uh, grandpa getting married or something like that was like one of the, and like the joke episodes actually became real episodes like 30 years down the line from that. Uh, so, so like maybe, maybe that's an indication that it's time. Although honestly, at this point, I say keep it going and I'll, I'll tell you why. So the time to have, to have, uh, ended it would have been like after season eight or nine. I think, but now that it's been rolling for so long, I, I feel like we just got to keep it going. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's like a tradition. So I watch it now, uh, with my kids and, you know, this goes back to the earlier point about, uh, you know, is it scandalous to let a, a, a seven-year-old watch the Simpsons? I let my seven and nine-year-olds watch the Simpsons and it's great. And I would like for them, uh, to be able to watch the Simpsons with their kid, new episodes with their kids in you know, 20 years or whatever. So I feel like, you know, we've already, it, it's way past its prime. So that ship has sailed. So just keep it going forever. Uh, similarly, I uh, uh, encourage my kids to watch The Simpsons. They're 12 and 8 right now. They've been watching The Simpsons for a couple of years. Uh, initially, my wife said, 
should we really be letting them watch The Simpsons? And my uh, response was, oh, hell yes, we should. Absolutely, we should. There's no question here they will watch The Simpsons. So from This is the parenting hill I will die on. <laughs> in one generation, we went from a kid who couldn't watch The Flintstones to a, a, a father who was encouraging his kids to watch The Simpsons. And as a kid – uh, who graduated high school the same year that the, the Fox launched the Simpsons series. So I, I, I like to think that I, I was the perfect age to get hooked on Star Wars because I saw that in the, uh, I saw the original, uh, episode four in the theater at the age of five. I also think I caught the Simpsons wave at just the right time because I was a knuckleheaded teenager when the series launched. And to be able now, as a middle-aged father of three, to, to go home and hear my kids quote classic Simpsons episodes to me, I mean, oh, oh this is uh, – uh, and, and I would love for my kids to have the same experience with uh, their kids and even with new episodes uh, if uh, they're able to keep the show profitable. There's a, uh, there's a really great – um, it, there's a video I watched about it. There's a, a YouTuber named Jacob Geller who does like, uh, video essays and things like that. But he specifically has a video about, I think it's in the 26th season or something like that. Don Hertzfeld, who's an animator, um, who has done movies like World of Tomorrow and It's Such a Beautiful Day. Um, really sort of strange, abstract, sort of existential, sad animated movies did an introduction for uh, did basically the couch gag for one of the episodes in the 26th season um and it involves homer picking up like a sci-fi remote and hitting it and basically traveling through time both backwards and forwards and you see the characters and the couch gag like devolve into these weird abstract like Lovecraftian monsters of the future. And it gives the impression that The Simpsons has gone on forever for th- hundreds and thousands of episodes <laughs> into the future so much that they become, they become the Samsons at one point and they, they just start spouting like gurgled versions of their catchphrases and stuff like that. And the, the video itself is, is a really sort of interesting contemplative meditation on what it means for these characters to like a lot of sitcom characters do learn lessons at the end of every story and then pretty much forget them as soon as it's over <laughs> which which is a very common trope in sitcoms it, it helps keep things consistent and things like that but with the scale of time that the the simpsons has been on the fact that you're having these people living seemingly eternally at this point and not learning from their lessons permanently is a really interesting sort of you know thought experiment on what it means to like take your memories with you and and what's the point of you know living a long life if you don't get to 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 keep what you've experienced and uh it's 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 really kind of interesting to think about what these characters learn at the end of every episode and what they choose to to carry on in their life and what's worth uh, leaving behind. And uh, I, I highly recommend people go and watch it. And I think it there's a heartwarming message about living in the present and living for the now and uh, doing the best that you can in the moment um, that is 
embedded in the Simpsons, but you would not get from the text of the story. It's from the repetitive sort of structure of it and what it's meant over time that I I think is really, really kind of cool. I saw, I I think this was a a tweet from one of the writers responding to, to a fan. This also goes to the point about like skewering the fans as well. I think the Simpsons really like to to do that uh, as well. And the, but, but I think there was a fan who was complaining about continuity errors. So like at one point, like, you know, Homer's in high school in the nineties and he's in high school in like the late, 70s or whatever it is. And the writer, I don't know if this was tongue-in-cheek or if he was being serious, uh, but he said each episode is its own universe. And so this would be an explanation for why they never learn because each episode is just its kind of self-contained world and then the next episode you see they're actually they're actually different. And I will say to maybe I, I maybe I shouldn't even publicize this, but uh, this is how old I am. Uh, when I started watching, I was eh, like more or less Bart's age. Uh, and now I'm uh, I'm Homer's age, so that so like I've like lived the arc from uh, from Bart to Homer, and my I hope I've learned more than the characters and internalized you know more of these lessons than the characters. But I but yeah, I myself have have uh, you know had all that time pass, which would make me the Grandpa Simpson of this episode. Um, <laughs> we were inching up to that. I figured I'd just make it explicit. Um, I w- I was curious what uh, your your kids' favorite episodes are. Like, do you go back and watch? Like earlier seasons, or do you watch them like right now? So, so well, so a couple of things. So, my son, uh, you know, I was very proud when he he made this observation. He says uh, the the new episodes have better drawings, but they're not as funny. And I thought, you know, that's actually that's spot on. He, you know, the 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 episode that my kids both both of my kids always like to return to is um, what is it called? I think it's called something like "You Only Move Twice." It's the, uh, the, where, where, uh, I'm forgetting all the, like Hank Scorpio, I think is, uh, the guy where the, the Simpsons move <laughs> to the new town and it's kind of like a, a James Bond parody, which is like, which is a pretty good episode. It's like not my favorite episode, but for some reason, my kids really like that one. Um, uh, I think my boys like the show more than my daughter does. Uh, and they gravitate toward the episodes where Bart is at his most, um, uh, puckish or pluckish, and and so the one that that I, I most often hear about from them is Bart versus Australia, and and they love the part where Bart plays the adults uh, for fools right in front of their faces, right after he told them he was going to do it, and they don't even notice. It, it comes when they uh, explain to Bart that he is going to have to go to Australia and apologize for, uh, you know, a collect call that cost some Australian family thousands of dollars or something. And he said, all I have to do is go to Australia and give a phony apology. I'm great at phony apologies. And Marge says, Bart. And he says, I'm sorry. My son is, uh, is fre- frequently quotes that one back to me. I think that's his favorite episode. Like Bart's shirt said adults suck then you become one <laughs> <laughs> and one thing we haven't talked about in terms of how long it's going to go on what happens when they lose uh, ip protection and then anyone can create a simpsons uh, uh it's going to be one of those uh, mickey mouse scenarios the simpsons <laughs> cinematic universe is what's yeah, going to yeah they're they're going to they're going to keep extending the copyright so that uh, they can keep milking that cow
And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. Uh, so, Canon, Chris, what else have you been watching, reading, playing, uh, doing with your free time other than devouring Simpsons? So right now I'm uh, sort of – uh, I'm not quite in between shows. Uh, I'm waiting on each new Ted Lasso, waiting with bated breath because I, I made the mistake uh, of – not waiting until the season was over or the series was over and then binging. And so now I'm in this weird place where it feels like it's, you know, the 1990s again, where I have to wait for a, for, for the right day of the week for a show to come out. Uh, on the other hand, it's not really a mistake because Ted Lasso is just really that good. And, uh, in this, what are we in the second season now? Uh, it, there is a, there's a, uh, a turn that I think some, viewers have criticized but that just makes me like the show that much more and so i'm i'm loving it and i think i'm actually uh i think i got a no uh, i'm a show behind i got a notification at 12 30 a.m this morning that today's today we're recording on a friday that today's episode is available and so i'm very excited to see that but i'm also excited to hear what other people are watching because uh i i i, didn't, I don't have something to binge right now you know, I, I've never se- I've heard very good things about it, but I've never seen it. So I don't. But it's on it's on Apple TV, right? The see, this is the thing: the proliferation of the streaming services. I I just I can't keep up. Although that, so I did, and this actually I think maybe speaks to to the original question. So I did uh, sort of uh, surrender and get uh, the HBO uh, streaming service. And so I've been watching some shows on that, and and they're actually older shows, but they're they're I I think they're they're underrated. And so I'll give you two. Uh, one is Reno 911, uh, which was like, which is just really, really fun. I had forgotten how funny it was until I started rewatching it. The first couple seasons in particular are just great. So I highly recommend that. The, the other one that I would recommend is, uh, the Larry Sanders show, which is also hilarious. Uh, and, and it's kind of uh, ahead of its time. So it, it, it's, uh, it's about this, this guy. He's like a late night talk show host. Uh, but as far as I know, it was, it was one of the first shows that did it documentary style. So it's not quite like The Office where they have interviews, but it's kind of like, you know, Arrested Development or Curb Your Enthusiasm where it, it's kind of like shot in that style. And it's just, it, it's super, super funny. And it, you know, it was funny throughout the entirety. Uh, of, uh, you know, the, the five or six seasons or whatever it was. And those are both on, on HBO. And they're, and they're, they're quite binge worthy. So if you, if you do have that service, I would recommend both the Larry Sanders show and Reno 911. If I could jump in on the HBO part, uh, started watching, uh, Hacks, which is a, uh, an older Joan Rivers type comedian who's sort of the queen of Vegas. Um, and that is enjoyable. It's, uh, it's, it's fun. There's, it's funny. Um, uh, kind of bubblegum. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a Ted Lasso, but you know, if you're looking for something, you might check that out. Yeah. I, I wa I just watched, um, Sharp Objects on HBO. Um, it was good. I mean, it's, it's pretty dark. 
it's based off of a book by the same name and um it's the author who also did um Gone Girl. Yeah, so it's like it's like kind of dark like Gone Girl but a completely different story and narrative. Um so I watched that, it was good. I haven't read that book though. Um and then I also watched um it's on Hulu, but I watched Nine Perfect Strangers. I had read the book. Um the show wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. I thought the book was much better. Um but it did it does have like kind of an all-star cast. It has Nicole Kidman in it, um Melissa McCarthy I'm blanking on some of the other people, but like pretty much all of the strangers and nine perfect strangers are famous actors. Um, and then I just started uh, clickbait, which is like that new Netflix show that was trending for a while. Um, I'm only one episode in, um, so I don't really know um, what the big like twist is, but um, the first episode ended on a cliffhanger. So we'll see. It kind of eerily reminded me of um, don't F with cats. Um, because it's like based on like the power of social media in the sense that like it has like a very hidden message. But Don't F with Cats was a documentary, Clickbait is not. Um, but it's good so far. And on oh, on the book front, I just started Outsiders uh by Stephen King. Um, and that is also an HBO show. I or I believe it's an HBO show. Um, but we'll see. I'm love a good Stephen King book, so uh I am also week to week with ted lasso made the same same mistake of binging the first season and then hopping on as soon as season two started so i'm you know it's a week to week event at this point but i like i said before i really like it i made that same mistake and i actually just got to the point where i'm episode to episode with another show that um based on some of you know your recommendations both uh, both of you um that i think you would both like which is fx's what we do in the shadows um it is so funny and i love it so um taika waititi um and jermaine clement from flight of the concords co-wrote uh, a short film and later a movie um that then they've remade into a now sort of a serial episodic uh series for fx um a, a single cam documentary style series a la the office with interviews and stuff but it's about vampires that live in staten island and there's like three of three or four of them that are roommates in this big old abandoned mansion and one of them has a human familiar that he like keeps as like a, a servant that um he sort of has this weird relationship with it is so funny because they're fearsome vampires that will drink your blood and like are vicious killers but they're also of course like any comedy inept at most things and just do not understand the modern world because they don't go out during the day when people do things i highly recommend it they are they're very tightly paced episodes like 22 minutes or something like that there is never a dull moment Never does a joke go on too long, and everybody is just, like, hitting it, you know, 10 out of 10 performance-wise. Um, and there's great cameos. Uh, there are, I think they're in the third season now, which is airing, um, but the first two seasons are 10 episodes each. So good. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher, Pod. 
Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen as well. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>